I'm Thanasi Kambanis. Welcome to Order from Ashes, the Century Foundation's international affairs podcast. Today, I'm joined by Karen Young, a longtime analyst of the Gulf, who happens to have been studying two things that are very uh, sharply in the news in the last month. Uh, the first is the spread of the coronavirus, and the second is oil shocks. Uh, Karen, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Thanks for inviting me. So today we're going to we're going to talk about first corona and its impact on the region, then the collapse of oil prices and how that came about, and then we're going to end by uh, hearing your thoughts on on what this teaches us about the interconnectedness of the region and the region in the world. Uh, but let's start with the thing that's I think on everybody's minds, which is uh, corona. How how is that? Uh, how is the virus manifesting and being responded to in the Gulf? I think this is, you know, such a trying time, but also a, a really interesting time from a public policy perspective in that we do see, you know, a lot of variation in the kind of the levers and, and the mechanisms that states have to respond and, and their effectiveness, frankly. Um, so, you know, all the political scientists out there were thinking about state capacity, right, when um, when there are obviously a lot of ways to, to understand um, the, you know, the, the pandemic effect. Um, so if you look across the GCC, I think, um, you know, the, the first kind of reaction has been um, a bit of a lockdown in terms of um, limiting access of foreigners, so limiting arrivals, um, shutting down some transportation networks, and then, you know, doing the same kind of social, social isolation practices that we're, we're, you know, beginning to instigate here in the United States, so closing restaurants, um, and, 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 you know, places where there'd be large gatherings of people. Um, but this has been done, you know, in some places at a different speed than others. Of course, the, you know, the, the big failure is everyone has looked at Iran and Iran has been the, you know, the sort of point of contagion for much of the GCC. Um, and so Bahrain felt a lot of this, um, first and, um, you know, had, a, of course, also a political response in, in which they very much blamed the Iranians um, for sending people back who uh, were infected. Um, and then that created a little bit of a ripple effect in which um, states very friendly to Bahrain, like the UAE, for example, stopped flights and even in terms of transport of some cargo. So this has had a bit of a, of a lockdown effect on, um, on business and trade and, um, and people-to-people contact within the GCC. How, how much of a factor was the, are the ongoing tensions between Iran and, and its Arab neighbors in the Gulf in terms of sharing information about the, the pandemic as it broke out? Yeah, I think um, information sharing has generally not been good, but that's that's everybody's fault, not just something unique to the Gulf, um, but particularly in the Iranian case. Um, one thing that was interesting, I would say, is that uh, the UAE kind of early on did uh, facilitate uh, the transfer of some WHO, WHO materials um, to Iran, and then just uh, in the last few days has also um, done some of, its, some of its own kind of aid support, medical supplies to Iran. Qatar did the same thing. Um, so, you know, there's, there's some evidence of what I would call good neighbor policy, um, but in terms of um, just a lot of fear that that is, you know, that is, you know, affecting policy a lot. When we look at the different stimulus packages that um, governments within the GCC have have recently announced, um, 
there is a big difference in scale. So we've seen stimulus packages announced in the UAE, in Saudi Arabia, and in Qatar. And in the UAE, there are actually two separate packages. So within the government in the Emirate of Dubai, we have one, and then we have one coming from Abu Dhabi. And the Dubai package is considerably smaller, and it's more geared towards um, kind of business-friendly initiatives, which, you know, give people um, less fees in order to li- to license and register a business, um, making it a little bit easier to um, to set up and, and set up an electricity account. Whereas in Abu Dhabi, uh, the government, through an existing initiative, you know, which was a part of their diversification plans, it's called Gadan 21, um, they have announced about um, $5 billion worth of funding. And some of this interestingly backtracks on the efforts to reduce subsidies in electricity and fuel prices and water. So they're putting some of those subsidies back in, basically saying to businesses, your electricity is going to be covered by the government again. Um, so that's an interesting change. In Saudi Arabia, the stimulus is focused on small and medium-sized enterprises, which is a good thing and really stays in line with the Vision 2030 um, objectives. And that one is quite large. It's about 13 billion U.S. dollars um, of funding put aside for uh, for business who are who will be affected by um, by the current crisis. So, so in a crisis, they they go back to the traditional social safety net. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and these are some of the you know the only levers that that these governments have because there is no um, you know there is no personal income tax. There is now a value added tax in the UAE, Saudi, and Bahrain, but. And, and they can afford it, unlike many of their their neighbors. So the UAE, Abu Dhabi can afford it. Um, Dubai can't, um, you know, give as much of a package. And you know, the the kind of federation politics will be interesting. Saudi Arabia's stimulus package, I think, is uh, probably the the smartest one in terms of the you know staying on track with the diversification goals. In that they have announced um, a package that is for small and medium sized enterprises, so some relief to businesses. How, how quick were they the, these these monarchs to realize the severity of the epidemic and start taking measures? Um, uh, were they as slow as our government in the United States, or were they little, any faster? Yeah, probably a little <laughs> faster because you know they they've already done it, but they also began to feel the effects um, before we did because of their their linkages and closeness to Iran and really to China, which is a whole other issue. But um, yeah, so we're we're seeing. We're seeing efforts. Um, so, in terms of restricting who can come in out in and out of the country, um, and you know what the government can do to try to support what little bit of the private sector there is um, that's active. T- tell me a little bit about actually how severe the epidemic is in the region. I mean, I have a sense from from what I followed and read, including work of yours, uh, of 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 just how profoundly this has disrupted Iran uh, and it seems that Iraq is also in in you know high up in the upward uh, curve of, of proliferation of cases and starting to take extreme measures like declaring a, a curfew nationwide curfew and the like so how how severe is it and how disruptive has it been to life uh, in in the wider region this also is you know sort of how we're feeling in the US it's very hard to tell um, because you know of testing and because of you know government information flows so it could be that there are many more people who are ill with the virus and we just don't know about it um, 
we're not seeing the same sorts of media coverage of hospitals being completely overrun um, with cases and not being able to um, to properly take care of people. That what's happening in Iran, we're not seeing that in the GCC states. That's not to say it's not possible. It's just that um, we don't know about it or it hasn't happened yet. Well, and the, and the big, you know, the the sort of most populous three countries, uh, Saudi Arabia, Iran, and Iraq, have very very different uh, types of health systems and and state capacities. And you know, Iraq has very little of, of any of those things. It's got a, a really shambolic health system, and and uh, to the extent that it has a severe epidemic, I don't think they, I, I don't even think they'd have beds to that many beds to run out of. Iran seems to have a sophisticated health system that's. Uh, that's been outmatched. Uh, and Saudi, I have less of a sense of how 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 ready are they? How good is the health system in normal times? And how resilient do you expect it to be if if the epidemic falls the course that it has elsewhere? You know, I I really don't know. I, this is something that you would have to find someone who's an expert on the on the Saudi public health system, and that's that's not me. Um, you know, I think what we do know is that there are government hospitals, that there is public care available, that people are not having to worry if they're citizens um, about the cost of testing or the cost of care. So even if the standard is maybe not what you or I would want, it's there. Um, you're right. Iraq is a, is a totally different situation. Um, and Iraq is more vulnerable in economic ways as well. You're listening to Order from Ashes, the Century Foundation's International Affairs Podcast. We'll be right back. Today's world is changing faster than ever. Old rules don't apply, and the new rules haven't been written. At least not yet. I'm Rohan Advani, and I produce the Order from Ashes podcast at the Century Foundation, a leading progressive think tank that promotes peace, cooperation, and equality at home and abroad. On Order from Ashes... We try to make sense of a new international system in which America no longer dictates the global order. Join us as we talk to activists and analysts on the front lines of the most pressing issues in international policy. Hi, I'm Thanasi Kambanis. I'm here with Karen Young, and we've been talking about the coronavirus COVID-19 outbreak uh, as it's played out in the Gulf. Uh, And we're now going to turn to a second uh, systemic shock that has taken place in the last two weeks, which seems unbelievable how how much has happened. Uh, Tell us, Karen, what happened uh, to oil prices and why? We have to put this in the context of really where we've been for the last five years. So since late 2014, we've been experiencing really, you know, real structural changes to global energy markets. And this, you know, was brought on by the shale revolution in the United States and by, you know, production of um, of shale oil and, and tide oil all over the world. And so we have had an increase in, in supply. We never met that peak supply moment. We've got plenty of oil. Um, and we had a bit of a slowdown in demand mostly um, from the Chinese economy. We're looking back now to kind of early 2015. And that was brought on for different reasons. China was still growing, India still growing, um, but they've had a real also diversification in their own energy mix, right? The way that they have been building power plants and kind of shifting away from dirty oil-fired plants to more um, LNG uh, plants. So, you know, these are some reasons why um, oil demand and prices started softening um, five years ago. Now, the way that 
OPEC members and other oil producers in, in what became known as OPEC Plus tried to mitigate this um, this price fall was an agreement that was reached in late 2016, in which OPEC Plus another you know uh, set of members, including Russia and Mexico, decided on um, on you know producing less and trying to even out the market a bit. So they got prices back into a range where governments were relatively comfortable. They're still, across many oil producers in the Middle East, very well below their break-even prices, but in the $50 to $60 per barrel range. And what happened in the last couple of weeks, there was another meeting of OPEC plus, plus Russia, on March 6th, in which the uh, participants failed to agree to continue those restraints on production. And this has created a flood, an oil flood to markets. Um, And the Saudis took it a bit further. They decided, okay, fine, if we can't reach an agreement on how to all, you know, restrain ourselves, we're going to go all out in terms of production. And we're going to ramp up production more than we've done in the past, really more than anyone thought was possible, aiming for up to about 13 million barrels per day. and they're also bringing oil out of storage. There has been a lot of oil in storage over the last five years because uh, prices were not so high. And so this has been just an absolute shock to markets. Um, and you know, it comes in <laughs> coordination, unfortunately, with um, a major decline in demand, especially from China, because of the COVID epidemic or pandemic, we would say now. Um, so it's, it's a bit of a double shock. And that's why we're seeing prices, you know, dipping even below $30 a barrel, which is, um, you know, some oil analysts would say we're not even done yet. We haven't hit the floor. So what's the what's the aim of this? I, I've, I've heard the analysis that from Russia's perspective, this is useful because it uh, uh, it can, you know, either hobble or destroy the the, the Competition from shale producers uh, in the United States, uh, and and put them later on in a better market position. Is that also the thinking for Saudi Arabia? Is there some other reason reason from Saudi's perspective to do this? Yeah, I mean, I think the the same logic that they had in you know the beginning of 2015 is is kind of taking hold again, um, and that it's a bit of a price war. And one objective would be yes to um, to get the shale producers out of the market because shale is generally more expensive to produce. But the thing about shale production is that it can be turned on and off more easily than, say, um, the kind of production that we see um, in the Middle East and in, in, in the Gulf. So that's one objective. The other objective is market share. Um, so this is particularly the the feud between Saudi Arabia and Russia. They have the they share basically their main customers, um, and these are customers in Asia. So India, China, South Korea, Japan. Um, and so I think the Saudi strategy is to um, make Russia share some of this pain um, and to to produce cheaply. There is an argument that if oil prices, basically if demand can pick up, if we get through whatever is happening to the global economy right now, if we can avoid a a world recession or come out of it by the third quarter or the beginning of 2021, that Saudi Arabia would be well positioned to be, you know, a very large and strong producer because their cost of production is so low um, and that they would be able to maintain relationships with their number one and two customers, particularly in China, 
um, by selling them just so cheaply now that they would get that kind of bounce back um, when things start improving. Um, and basically by volume, selling a lot, even if cheaply, um, once prices go up, they're going to be making a lot of money. So that's that's the logic of what they're doing right now. But that depends on things turning around. And I don't think there's anyone who watches the global economy right now who who can tell you for certain when things are going to get better. We're all trying to figure out when you know when things stop getting worse. So they're they're gambling on this short-term shock uh, not causing a long-term depression because if it does then they're going to be hurting as much as as, as everyone else. Um, and and it's interesting to hear what you say too because it seems if I understand correctly that what began as a sort of joint Saudi Russian uh, gambit against the other people in OPEC plus then turned into a, a sort of Saudi Russia race to the bottom uh, that whichever one of them survives with a greater market share emerges on top. Uh, but that that seems like a high risk game for for those two countries in particular. It really is. And so then it becomes about who has more reserves to hold out longer, who can access more debt, um, or who can, you know, withstand the pain from, you know, a, from a citizenry, which is unhappy with whatever measures have to be taken. Um, and Russia and Saudi Arabia, they're, you know, these are well-matched rivals in, in this respect. Um, they both have strong reserve positions. They both are, you know, countries with the ability to repress their populations. Um, but, you know, Aramco is is kind of in a league of its own and, and Russia oil producers are, are nominally, you know, more, more private entities, so to speak. T- tell me how this is going to affect Saudi Arabia's relations with its neighbors i'm thinking in particular about iraq but you can you can expand on this i mean for iraq uh which had budgeted it's our I mean, iraq in a very fragile position even before the covid-19 outbreak budgeting on a on a price of 60 dollars a barrel suddenly facing half that and uh as far as i see maybe unable to to be solvent as a state i mean they're going to have to do some kind of huge catastrophic cuts at a time when they were already living hand to mouth uh is, is this an issue for Saudi Arabia? Will it, will it be, uh, you know, how, how will this affect its leverage in the region, its relations in the region? Yeah. I mean, the Iraq case is, um, is a really striking one. I mean, I was just looking at a, at a report from, uh, from Barclays that says Iraq has, is, has been able to increase its, um, its foreign reserve position. It's actually at kind of a, a five-year high right now. They have about $68 billion, but they could run through that very quickly. I mean, we've seen a, you know, about a $30 per barrel, uh, price cut. Um, and so, you know, they could, they could lose, you know, a fifth of their, you know, percentage of their GDP very, very quickly, um, just because of the way prices have changed in the last two weeks. Um, so what kind of levers do they have? Um, and this was a year in the, I think their 2020 budget, they were meant to, you know, start kind of spending again and, and rebuilding. So in the context of, um, you know, coming out of conflict and reconstruction, this is the worst possible timing, um, for government planning. For Saudi Arabia, um, the way that they sort of connect to the rest of the region. Iraq is 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 not in the same category as, say, Egypt or Jordan, um, or maybe even Lebanon in the way that remittance flows are important, um, but also state support, whether it's through um, you know oil and gas in kind transfers, which they probably could do quite easily now, 
um, or, you know, support to central banks, um, budget support, um, or even, um, you know, commitments of foreign direct investment. So those are the areas where, you know, we're going to see weaker states in, in the MENA region who are more dependent on kind of what happens in the oil exporters, um, particularly of the GCC, be in a really vulnerable position. We'll be right back. At a time when the focus of politics is on being the loudest voice and not the most informed, the Century Foundation delivers thoughtful, evidence-based policy leadership with purpose. I'm Lucy Muirhead, Chief Strategy Officer at the Century Foundation. We work to reduce inequality, foster opportunity, and promote peace and security, carrying on a tradition that TCF's founder began in 1919. In the Century Ahead, we'll continue to prioritise rigour over reactivity, elevate the best ideas and most diverse voices, and never lose sight of what it takes to make an impact. I'm Thanasi Kambanis. You're listening to Order from Ashes, and I'm here with Karen Young, who's on the line from Washington, D.C. So is this going to be for, you know, for, for, I don't know if we call them downstream countries, but countries like Lebanon uh, or even Egypt, which depend on remittances and, and other other sort of cash that escapes from the huge economies in the Gulf uh, uh, to survive, sort of they're living off the fumes of, of the Gulf economies. Are these countries going to just plummet into deep depressions as a result of this shock, even if it only lasts half a year? Well, this is this is why the interconnectivity of, of this current double crisis really matters, because in normal times, we would say, oh, well, if oil prices are low, wouldn't that be good for a growing country that's an oil importer like a Jordan or uh, an Egypt? Um, and many economists, analysts now are saying, well, not so fast, right? Because the other things that bring in economic activity to these places are also not doing so well. So tourism globally is facing, you know, an absolute disaster. We just don't even know or can't even see yet how this will affect um, economies like, you know, the visits to Petra or the visits to the the pyramids in Egypt or, um, or, or to Lebanon as well, which is very dependent on Gulf travelers in the summer. Um, so, you know, that that doesn't look so good. The other, you know, kind of options um, where you might see low oil prices, you know, making airfare cheaper or making manufacturing inputs cheaper, um, it's not really going to help uh, if if there's no economic activity whatsoever. So is it, is it, is it correct to think of the MENA region as one of the most interconnected and interdependent uh, uh, globalized parts of the of the world economy? Yes and no. I mean, trade activity within MENA is appallingly low. <laughs> um, so they they are interconnected and dependent, but not in the ways of um of dynamic economies. Um and mostly this is because, you know, they're especially in, you know, in the oil exporters, that's that's kind of their their one game in town. They they don't have a lot of other manufacturing or exports um, to produce. Um, and you'll see even, you know, within North Africa, there's not a lot of trade between neighbors. But then an enormous amount of labor exchange and of course a, an enormous amount of trade with external partners, whether it's China or or Europe for food and, and manufactured goods. Right. So the, the linkages are more more really about people, their remittance flows, their um um, you know, family connections depending on, you know, all kinds of um 
right now even you know, refugee flows and uh, and people you know really depending on those those neighborhoods to um, to help take care of them. Well, I think of both re- refugee or, or IDP movements and then also religious pilgrimage movement, which we don't talk about a lot when we think yeah. about uh, the economy, although it is, I think, a huge uh, uh, engine for at least uh, Saudi Arabia and Iraq and Iran, which have multiple pilgrimage destinations. How, uh, I mean, first of all, is that shutting down with the virus? And and how, how is that affecting not just the economy, but sort of the uh, the the the, the the interconnected fabric of the way people just live in, in between places. Yeah, well, we've seen this first really um, from Iran and, um, you know, it was the people going on pilgrimage to Qom who, who first started bringing the disease back with them. Um, and we certainly then saw it go to Saudi Arabia where we've had Umrah um, shut down and it's you know very likely that the Hajj, in, which is in August this year, um, will certainly be affected, and that's a, a major source of revenue for the government of Saudi Arabia, but also you know as you say a, a point of you know kind of cultural contact, a, a point of pride and and um, you know patronage, right? So what about the foreigners that? Are there to make the that help make the economies run, and not just the you know the universities, the hospitals, the oil wells in in the Gulf? Um, is there a reaction to this either to the epidemic or to the political strains caused as a consequence of this crisis, these twin crises, uh, to to expel these foreigners or to or are they sort of still welcome because they're necessary? Well, I mean, this all is happening in the midst of a whole lot of diversification efforts, you know, in the last four years um, to nationalize certain sectors for citizens only, employment for citizens only. Um, We're seeing restrictions on um, the UAE has announced it will not issue any new visas. So they're not going to be inviting new workers in now. Um, Oman has closed its borders to all foreigners with the exception of GCC nationals. Um, Is it letting the ones who are there stay? So, yes. So technically, uh, Saudi Arabia gave foreigners with visas, if they were out of the country, gave them, I think, 72 hours to return, uh, presumably to, you know, get back to their families and their work and and their homes. Um, But this puts, you know, a very large expatriate population across the GCC in a terrible position. Um, because if they get out, they may not be able to get back in. You know, you're leaving property, you're leaving all your belongings, you're invested in terms of, you know, children's school fees and all that. Um, so I think for many families, this is um, this probably will cause um, a reconsideration of that uh, expatriate um, decision over the summer. You know, when people can get out, they, I'm sure many people will decide to, to leave and, and, and go home. So facing these very serious health and economic crises, which I think on an individual level can be catastrophic or, or at a minimum, really framework shifting, uh, I want to ask you to run through the sort of top line list of strategic crises and and speculate about whether these crises will have any effect on them. So uh, first one was the the rift between Qatar and the rest of the GCC countries. Yeah, unfortunately, I think um, we're seeing this globally, not just in MENA or in the GCC. You know, this is very much 
gold for people who and in, in governments who want to pursue a nationalistic, um, autarkic kind of policy. Um, the impulse is to shut borders, to keep foreigners out. Um, you know that the the virus itself is a, a foreign entity, so it it stokes a lot of those fears. Um, so it's not necessarily been good for um, for bridge building. With the exception, I would say, of these humanitarian efforts and outreach um, from both the UAE and also from Qatar to Iran. So there's a possibility that this provides a bit of a of a either a escape valve for tensions or even a sort of new channel uh, to to balance out the, the the security tensions. Yeah, I think. Um, I mean, it's in it's obviously in self interest. I mean, no one wants to see an imploding Iran, you know, with uh, with a completely debilitated government and and uh, a crisis it can't control. So I think there's there's self interest reasons for that. But um, but it is it is good just to have you know lines of communication. I think that's that's a good thing for the region. But as far as the GCC rift goes, um, I don't think we're seeing a lot of cooperation between the GCC states. I mean, they have essentially blocked each other. I mean, Saudi Arabia has closed all of its land borders, um, including to Bahrain. Um, so that's, um, you know, that's not in the spirit of, of free trade or free movement of, of citizens. The last strategic consequence I wanted to ask you about or, or, or implications for uh, is, is Russia in, in the GCC. Um, you know, there's been lots of uh, talk in recent years of, of countries that buy arms from the U.S., of maybe diversifying their suppliers and buying weapon systems from Russia. There's been a lot of talk of Russia trying to expand to fill strategic vacuums left by the U.S. Does this uh, uh, oil price war have any impact on the view of Russia or Russia standing in that in that uh, strategic competition? Yeah, I think it does. Um, and, you know, maybe this is one small silver lining for, you know, U.S. foreign policy and, and its ability to be recognized for, um, you know, the U.S. footprint in the region, which doesn't, um, it, it doesn't get a lot of credit. Um, I think the Saudis have been very unhappy with Russia's willingness to negotiate. Um, that's that will be remembered. Um, but also, I think this health crisis shows Russia's, you know, Russia's been really absent. I mean, you don't see, you don't see any kind of outreach or leadership um, or really information about what's going on inside of Russia in terms of their own domestic health response. Um, so I think this is a little bit of a recognition that, that Russia was a kind of a paper tiger, you know, was um, doing a lot of, of talk and getting a lot of, um, you know, rolling out the red carpet for Putin when he came to the UAE or Saudi Arabia to visit, but their capacity is actually pretty limited. I'm also surprised by by Iran's uh, domestic capacity. I mean, I've always thought of Iran as being fairly capable as a, as a institutional state uh, domestically, despite being weakened by sanctions. Uh, and I've been surprised by at least the secondhand reporting we've seen of the response to the health crisis, uh, I thought they would be better, you know, better equipped uh, as an administrative state than than they are. So I don't know if if you have any uh, takeaways about state capacity either for Iran or or for the region as a result of these crises. I think you know 
in the U.S., we're still learning this lesson ourselves. It's 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 state capacity, but it's also communication strategy. The Iranians were very very weak on this, um, and you know, frankly, the U.S. has been too. So, um, I think that that was their first failure. They just refused to um, to to do public health awareness. I mean, you can have good hospitals and good doctors, but if you don't um, you know, prepare them for what's coming, they certainly will, you know, will be overwhelmed as they were. Um, and people, you know, were not given good information about um, how not to spread the disease. Karen, thank you so much uh, for coming on uh, Order from Ashes and talking about these very uh, unfolding and frightening developments. And uh, we really appreciate your time. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us. I'm Thanasi Kambanis. You might have noticed our new name, Order from Ashes. If you enjoy what you heard, please rate us and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. It'll make it easier for other listeners to find us and help us keep producing these conversations. Thanks for listening. Until next time.